In Joshua 8, we hear the story of the second battle of Ai. We saw last week how disastrously the first battle went, but this time things go differently. When I was young, I loved the movie The Bridge Over the River Kwai. I loved the intrigue and the plot to blow up the bridge. And I can imagine little Israelite boys having similar feelings towards the second battle of Ai, asking to hear again the story of Joshua's intrigue and ambush. Like the book of Joshua as a whole in chapter 1, and the battle of Jericho in chapter 6, and dealing with Achan's sin in chapter 7, verse 10, Joshua 8 begins with God speaking to Joshua. God reassures Joshua and tells him that now that Achan's sin has been dealt with, Israel should get up and go attack Ai. In contrast to the battle of Jericho, where God gave very specific instructions to Joshua for how to siege the city, here he simply says, lay an ambush. I should alert you to the fact that short of finding a city name engraved on a gate, there's always questions about identifying archeological sites with ancient cities. And as Richard Hess lays out in his commentary, there's some trouble identifying AI. There's good reasons to think that Bethel, which is named several times in our story, should be identified with the modern site of Baitin, in which case we would normally identify AI with the nearby Et Tel. The problem is, is that Et Tel seems to have been one of the largest early Bronze Age cities, and yet our text tells us that AI is quite small. And furthermore, Et Tel does not seem to have been inhabited during the time of Joshua. In Hebrew, the name Ai means something like the ruins. So one possibility is that even in Joshua's day, Ai was already a ruin of a larger former city. And since it occupied a strategic location, soldiers used it as a fort to defend the hill country. Of course, this is only a suggestion, but it does help us to imaginatively engage the story. Picture the ruins of a large walled city that is now abandoned but being used as a fortress to block Israel from entering the hill country. Well, Joshua's plan is to have some men lie in ambush on the west side of the city. That would be the far side from the Jordan Valley and Jericho where Israel has been encamped. Then Israel's main forces will camp on the north side of the city and attack the city as before. And, as in chapter 7, they will retreat before the army of Ai, luring them off out of the city and retreat towards the wilderness, away from the ambush. Look at verse 14. When the king of Ai sees the army of Israel, he arises early in the morning and he heads out to battle. But we're told he did not know there was an ambush against him behind the city. Joshua's like a good chess player who's thinking several moves ahead of the king of Ai. Look up above a few verses earlier in verse 10. Joshua too arose early in the morning, but the day before the king of Ai, and he spent the night in the valley. The king of Ai and his army followed Joshua away from the city, just as Joshua had expected. And the men in the ambush then seized the city and kindled a fire within it. When the army of Ai sees the smoke, they realize that they have been defeated. Then the Israelites, who were waiting in ambush, come out of the city. The army of Ai is now surrounded, and it is wiped out in the battle. 
Then in the aftermath, after the battle, Joshua and all Israel head up to Mount Ebel, some 20 miles north of Ai, for a covenant confirmation ceremony. There's a mouthful for you. The rhythm of the book of Joshua, you might notice, is a bit like a waltz. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, where the downbeat is various covenant ceremonies. The book begins with Joshua being instructed to meditate on God's Torah, on his covenant. Then after crossing the Jordan, Israel is circumcised. They receive the sign of the covenant, and they celebrate the Passover, the covenant meal. Now after battles with Jericho and Ai, Israel again confirms its covenant with God. The instructions for this ceremony are actually given by Moses way back in Deuteronomy 27. He basically is saying, when you enter the land, confirm that you will still be faithful to God's covenant, even when you are in the land. This chapter depicts an intricate narrative with some ambiguity in terms of what's happening when as it moves back and forth between different perspectives. I want to focus this morning, though, on three truths. Three truths. The first is this, God gives help. God gives help. In verse one, God tells Joshua, do not be dismayed, do not fear. You've suffered a setback, but don't worry, I will be with you. We notice something interesting in this victory over Ai. Without God in Joshua chapter seven, Israel can be defeated even by this little outpost. But with God in chapter 6, even mighty Jericho cannot stand before Israel. What makes the difference is whether God is with Israel or not. Well, God is telling Joshua, go up against Ai. I will now be with you. I will give you help. God gives Joshua help by giving him a plan. And God's word is pivotal to this narrative. Each half of the chapter in verses 1 and verse 18 begins with God speaking to Joshua. Look at Joshua 8, 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand towards Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. Does this remind you of Moses in Exodus chapter 14? There in Exodus 14 we read, the Lord said to Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Both passages begin with the Lord speaking to his leader. In both passages, the leader holds out his staff or javelin. And in both stories, Israel wins a decisive victory and their enemy is defeated. But think about these two stories together. There's a significant difference. In both the dividing of the Reed Sea or the Red Sea and the defeat of Ai, God gives help to his leader, who is commanded to hold the symbol of power over his head. But in the Exodus story, God miraculously divides the waters by a strong wind and then drowns the enemy army in the waters. Joshua's victory seems rather mundane by comparison. It's just simply a battle between two armies. What's important to see by this allusion back to Exodus 14, though, is that God is equally at work giving help to his people in both stories. Imagine a father helping his young son learn to climb a tree. 
Sometimes he puts his hands on the boy's back to reassure him he is there and to help him. But at other times, the father removes his hands and makes the son climb on his own. These two stories together are a bit like that, but that's not quite right. It's not that God is absent in Joshua 8, but rather that he is working through the Israelite army rather than through miraculous means. As John Duncan, the 19th century Scottish Presbyterian ministry to Jews in Hungary, who is often called Rabbi Duncan, put it, that God works half and man the other half is false. That God works all and man does all is true. Of course, this point is driven home when we compare Israel's two battles with Ai. In the first attack, as Joshua 7.12 says, Israel cannot stand before her enemies, for God is not with her. But in Joshua 8, Israel wins a decisive victory because God is with them. Although we don't see God defeating the armies of Ai through miraculous means, he nevertheless is at work with Israel. Joshua 8 makes the same point another way. In Joshua 8.1, God tells Joshua, I have given into your hand the king of Ai. But in Joshua 8.7, Joshua says to the army, God will give Ai into your hand. From God's perspective, the help has already been given. The victory is secure. But from Joshua's perspective, the battle must still be fought. Paul applies this same dynamic to the Christian life in Philippians chapter 2. He writes there to the Philippians, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is just as true in our day as in Joshua's that God gives help. But just as in Joshua's day, that doesn't mean that we simply sit back and wait for God to miraculously provide for us. That's not to say God can't miraculously provide. We see that's true in the crossing of the Jordan and the Battle of Jericho. Certainly God does miraculously provide for his people from time to time. But here in Joshua chapter 8 and in the later battles we will see, God helps Joshua as Joshua faithfully and obediently carries out God's commands and sets about the work that God has given to him. And so it is for us. We pray as we begin our day, give us this day our daily bread. But then we don't sit back and wait for God to miraculously provide bread for us. No, we're called to set about the work to which God has given us each day, faithfully and obediently, resting in his help. God gives help. We see a second truth in this passage, that God gives good things. God gives good things. Last week, we looked at Achan stealing things that were placed under the ban. And the heart of Achan's sin comes from this uh, accepting a lie, what Dale Ralph Davis calls serpent theology, the old lie of the serpent in Genesis 3 that God doesn't really want us to be happy or to have good things. And this serpent theology is a constant temptation for us as well. We're tempted to think of God as miserly and stingy, telling us no to things we want to do or to things that are fun. But that is not at all what God is like. 
even back in Genesis 2 and 3, it wasn't true. After all, God's actual command in the garden was, you shall surely eat of every tree in the garden but one. The emphasis is on God giving a rich variety of good gifts to Adam and Eve. Well, Achan bought into the lie of serpent theology, and so he stole the forbidden goods. And now we see the full and tragic extent of Achan's folly. For God here specifically tells Israel in, in Joshua 8 verse 2 to take the spoils and the livestock of the city as plunder. Jericho, as it were, is the first fruits of the land, and all of Jericho is devoted to God. God's testing Israel to see if they will obey him or not. But now that the nation as a whole has obeyed God, and they dedicated Jericho to the Lord, God gives his people good things. If only Achan had waited. Not only does God give the plunder of Ai to Israel, but in Joshua 8, 7, Joshua says, You shall ambush and seize the city, or literally, you shall possess the city. If you can remember all the way back to November when we started this series, in Joshua 1, possess is a key term for the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that one day that their descendants would possess the land of Canaan. So Joshua is saying to his army, look, the promises of God, the promises to our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are being fulfilled this day. We are taking possession of the land. And at the end of the chapter, Joshua reads to the Israelites the blessings of God from the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 8, verse 33 here. God gives his people good things. Now the truth is, we are confronted daily in our lives with this same serpent theology that led Achan astray. We think of God as a miserly father who's just waiting to say no to us. Maybe some of you even had fathers like that. And so it's too easy to picture God as being like your father. But mark my words, friends, this is heretical theology. It's a heresy. It's a totally wrong picture of God. God isn't a killjoy waiting to say no, trying to stop you from having good things. The Bible paints a totally opposite picture from beginning to end. In fact, the very first command of the Bible from God is to eat from every tree. Eat. And the last command in the Bible from God is to come and drink without price. The Bible from beginning to end tells us that God sets a table for us, that he calls us to eat and to drink with him. God gives good things. Of course, one of the good things God gives is his commands, his law. But that's not intended to burden his people, but rather to teach us how to live well, how to flourish in the world. God gives his people good things. And so we ask in, in our prayers, give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need. Well, this passage teaches us a third sobering truth. God gives help. God gives good things. But God also gives just judgments. 
God gives just judgments. In Joshua 7 and 8, we see two rock cairns, two piles of stones. The first is piled over Achan and his family, and the second is piled over Ai's king. Notice at the end in, in, in uh, chapter 8 at the ceremony at Mount Ebel, although the king of Ai and his army opposes Israel, we're told twice in verse, chapter 8, verse 33 and 35, that there were both foreigners and native-born Israelites present at the ceremony. So apparently some, like Rahab and her family, chose to join Israel in worshiping the true God and keeping his covenant rather than opposing Israel. On the other hand, Achan the Israelite has broken God's law, and so he is liable to God's just judgment. He too is placed under the ban. Last week when we looked at Achan's sin, I used the analogy of sin being like a virus that has infected the whole human race. Of course, all analogies break down, but it helps us to think about the problem being faced here. And Joshua shows us how severe the solution is. Sin has to be cut out. It has to be put to death. And if you keep reading past Joshua into Judges, we see how deadly this virus is as sin spreads throughout the people of Israel, sinful motivations. We see how messed up their society becomes, how dysfunctional it is. But when Joshua assembles all the people at Mount Ebel, he, reads the, he first has them all together and he writes down the whole Torah, probably most of our book of Deuteronomy. And then he reads it out loud to all the people assembled there. Can you imagine that? Hundreds of thousands of people assembled together as the book of the law is read out loud. We're told everyone is present, standing together to hear this book read, to hear Deuteronomy read. The elders, the women, the little ones, the foreigners, everyone together hears God's covenant. Then Joshua proclaims the blessing, a bit like we have a benediction or blessing at the end of our service. Joshua says, God gives his people good things. But we're told in 834 that then God, Joshua also reads the curse for breaking the law. Can you picture that somber moment? When the whole law has been read, You've been fully instructed on God's way to live as God's people in the land. You've been told what you need to do to live righteous lives. Then Joshua reads out from Deuteronomy 28, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes, these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. And it keeps going like this for 53 verses. Can you imagine how somber and, and sobering that moment must be to have heard the whole law, God's righteous requirements, and then to hear the curses for breaking his commands? When we get to Joshua 24 eventually at the end of the book, Joshua gives his final speech, and he challenges all the people of Israel. He says, I'm about to die, 
You must choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people, inspired by Joshua's stirring speech, say, We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua responds to them, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a holy God. He can tolerate no sin whatsoever. And of course, if you keep reading in the book of Judges, you see how this plays out. Indeed, Israel is not able to keep the law perfectly. And their society falls into disarray. So what are we to do? If even Joshua's generation can't faithfully keep God's law, what hope do we have? After all, God gives just judgments. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know what we deserve. We know that we lie. We know that we steal, steal and covet like Achan. We know that we commit adultery with our eyes and that we dishonor God with our words. We know what we deserve. And yet this very passage also teaches us that God gives good things. How do these fit together, God's just judgment and his good things, both of which he gives? Well, we've already heard God's solution in the assurance of pardon from Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Just as Joshua sat down on Mount Ebal or stood up and read the whole law to uh, the people of Israel, so Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 sits down on the mountain and teaches the people God's law. He teaches them the spirit of the law, what they must do to keep it. Just like Joshua, Jesus sees that Israel cannot faithfully keep the law or God's people cannot faithfully keep the law as they must. But Jesus isn't only like Joshua reading the law. He's also like the king of Ai. God gives good things. In fact, God gave his beloved son, his most precious possession for us. And like the king of Ai, Christ, our Lord, our king, was hung on a tree outside the city gates. He became a curse for us, Galatians 3 says. He took all the covenant curses for breaking God's covenant commands that we deserve so that we can have God's covenant blessing. Christ has fulfilled God's covenant so that God can give us good in this life and good in the life to come, life everlasting, life with God himself after our death. Let us pray. Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, we are humbled in your presence that you, a King, should die for us, that you, a King, should be hung on a tree and become the curse that we deserve so that we might have blessings. Jesus, our Lord and King, you are also God's very word, the true revelation of what God is truly like. And so we know that God is good and that he delights in giving his people good. We see that God gives his very self, his son, for us. 
And so, Lord, root out from our hearts the heretical theology of the serpent, the false claim that, that you are stingy and miserly, and replace it with the true picture of a God who delights in giving his people good things, a God who gives him his very self in order to bless us. We ask, Lord, even this morning as we worship and reflect on your word, that you would give yourself to us, that you would be present with us, that you would sustain us, that you would give us joy even in trying circumstances. Amen.